we are going to really follow the earth's lead on what we need to do next in any given area and we aren't going to be adding additional inputs that nature wouldn't otherwise you know do in observing what nature does to be able to help things thrive and there's incredible value for us to be able to connect with our community in that way even if our practices are different do you draw that line in the sand and say we stand on this side for these things or do we leave space so that people can come and feel vulnerable enough to be themselves and be able to work through those things themselves hello and welcome to the covenant thinking podcast i'm your host benjamin freud and today's guest is amy milliron amy is the founder of fearless farmers it's a regenerative farm in texas she has a background in education she spent many years as a teacher and she decided to move to Texas to set up this regenerative farm that now is the host of educational programs, brings in teachers for professional development, sets up networks online uh, to develop curriculum for regenerative farming and, and working with soil and the land. She hosts students and all kinds of programs. This is a particularly interesting conversation for the Coconut Theme Podcast because it really speaks to the bridges between educators and practitioners, and Amy represents that bridge. She is able to speak the language of teacher as well as regenerative farmers. And in this conversation, we'll really look into what that curriculum of working with the soil, of acting in ways that are for the health of the soil and the food we eat, how that can translate and spill into curriculum, and what we can bring back from these lessons. We might not all have access to farming, but we could think about some of the practices that are here. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, that's www.coconut-thinking.com. You'll find articles, resources, podcasts. But in the meantime, I will leave space to my conversation with Amy. Hi, Amy. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I met you, I guess it was several months ago on the Thriving Children Everywhere Network and heard your story there, found it fascinating, and we were put in contact by Nadia Sandi and, and had more conversation. And it's funny because so much uh, of this week, I've, I've captured the idea of people talking about regenerative, regenerative farming and regenerative agriculture. So maybe my antenna were up or maybe we're just connected and entangled in a world where it's just, you know, what, what is a reverberating there? So I'm really excited to get into this topic with you and into your ideas and your work. The first question I'll ask though is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Well, thank you for inviting me. I like to share that I am a nature lover. I feel grounded and secure and comforted by being in nature. I am a lifelong learner, but I also think that everybody is. <laughs> I am a mother and I am an educator and I am someone who is really, really drawn to and draws energy from being in community. And I use these at this current moment to um, be able to have these be the passions that I have to be able to run two different businesses as a CEO. But that's really just being able to use who I am to do something meaningful and purposeful in, in the world at this time. I'm looking forward to exploring this idea of lifelong learning and whether calling it lifelong learning might be really forgetting the fact that as we're alive, we're always learning and maybe it might be a little bit of a misdirection. But before we do that, I'd love to ask you, how do you define learning? To me, learning is connectedness. 
So if we have something that we are exposed to, whether or not we realize it or not, we are learning and it creates a little file in your brain. <laughs> and I like to describe this when I am facilitating learning for younger people, especially because they can use this visual very well. And that the next time we encounter something that's connected to what we already learned, then that little file in our brain opens up and then it makes that connection and allows that learning to expand and oftentimes without us even realizing it. And then it gives us the ability to pull from that little file in our brain when we are ready to learn something new. And sometimes as we get older, when it's much more complex, then it requires multiple files being opened at once so that we can connect all those pieces together. And it doesn't matter what we're learning. It's all, it is all connected in some way. And a lot of what we'll probably dig into today in our conversation has to do with holism and and a holistic context and how everything is connected together. And so I think learning really is connected all in the same direction. So I think this is absolutely fascinating. And when, when you mentioned the experiences that we have and it creates a file in our brain, there's, there's a temporal aspect there, the, a, a time aspect of we make meaning from certain experiences and then maybe can draw on that or certainly uh, the interpretation we had of that experience. I'm also thinking about connectedness in terms of, of spatial um, considerations, that is, the connectedness we have with each other and the space in between each other and how that's learning and how learning is a social experience. How do you find that in terms of the learning spaces that you create for the folks and the young and, and older people who, who you encounter? You know, I, the power of observation is, is incredible. And if we learn at a young age how to use observation to be able to see how nature is connected then we can mimic that oftentimes without thinking about it either. And so, you know, for example, trees are communicating with each other through an incredible network under the ground that we can't even see sharing resources. I like to think of them literally talking, <laughs> saying, Hey, I'm a little thirsty over here. You think you can share some? <laughs> and, and when we see how nature is showing us and trees are just one example of that connectedness and being able to be there and support each other, then humans can replicate that and often do with either intentionally making those decisions to be connected or, um, or patterns are set to where that connection just happens. And in that, that's where the learning takes place as well. So when I am in the when I have the privilege of being able to facilitate the learning of people regardless of age, um, it's really fun to watch how they are able to take what they are learning from their environment, wherever their place is, and connect themselves to it and to the people around them. And I notice that there's a huge comfort level there that is fun to watch. So for instance, um, I'm on a ranch and we just hosted a huge event here on our ranch on Sunday and we invited our community and we invited people from far away and um, lots of different folks came that didn't know each other. And sometimes when you're in a new environment, it's helpful to feel connected to place so that you can find that comfort level. And so the first thing that we did is we went on a scavenger hunt to get to know the lay of the land so that not only could we get grounded, but get connected with each other and understand and orient ourselves to place. And then that meant that anything else that we were learning through the rest of the day, we had that comfort level so we could rest into those connections that could happen next. And I definitely want to get into the work that you do in the ranch, but this is tremendously interesting, this part about place and how place plays a role and affects 
the way that we learn and the experiences that we have and that we aren't separated and individuals. And no matter what we learn, we learn the same thing. We can't necessarily think about, um, uh, we can't remove ourselves from the environment and we can't standardize those experiences. So how, how have you found that the place influences, impacts, affects the way the experiences are drawn out? How can we draw lessons from that? And what lessons have you drawn from that? Oh gosh, that could go in a million different directions. And I'm just drawing on previous experiences from myself. So I, I have lots of different experiences as an educator in different environments. So if I look at it through that lens and I think about what it was like to teach in a public school versus what it was like to teach in a private school versus what it's like to teach now on land um, with, with the connection to the outdoors and um, be able to really connect with ecological concepts. There's, there's so much that you can look at from each of those lenses, I could say, that would help paint the picture of what that would mean. So if I'm in a classroom and I have students that uh, aren't used to going outside or don't have the opportunity to be able to go outside and I have the chance to be able to help them um, maybe break that paradigm a little bit, then I'm going to take that opportunity to do that. And then if I am in a new environment where I'm given a little bit more freedom to be able to uh, connect those dots um, and maybe even funding sources are different that allow me to be able to have the resources that I maybe didn't have in a different environment so that I could make those available to folks. Or then let's talk about what it looks like here at the ranch. If I am able to connect people to the the land and the curriculum in a whole new way, then it, it's, it, it helps if we are bringing in the people that are connected to that place in the first place. So for instance, I am here on this land and we've only been in this particular property since August, but for me to tell the real story of what happens here, it's important for me to bring in my community that's around me who's been here for a long time, because they'll be able to tell the story of this place much better than I will and help people who are visiting be able to connect better. So in each of those environments, it's important for me to do the same thing. So tell us a story. How did you end up uh, where you are now? How did you end up doing what you're doing now? And, and how will that end be actually the pathways to other adventures? But maybe tell us a little bit about your story and, and, and what the work is that you're doing. So I get to do the best thing ever. I get to actually have a job that happens to completely 100% overlap with my passion in life. And I feel very fortunate to have that opportunity. It's been a long time coming and it's really fun to be at this place. So I celebrate that quite often. I am a certified teacher. I have a master's in curriculum and instruction. And as I said before, I've taught in various environments and all along the way, kept seeking out opportunities to be able to help my learners, regardless of age, um, increase ecological literacy. And I kind of in the beginning did it without realizing that that's what I was doing until I noticed a pattern and also realized that I needed to keep moving myself towards um, a place where I felt very connected so that I could model that to my students. And in some cases, it was very difficult to do in a very um, strict, rigid environment that gave a very 
particular, I'll call it prescriptive way of teaching. And so I realized I needed to be in an environment where I had the freedom to be able to call on my innate ability, as well as what was called for by the learners at the time. And when I had an opportunity to move from Arizona to Texas in the United States, I had a chance to, um, with my husband and family, purchase land. We were able to uh, start a farm and I didn't know what I was doing. I went out and got as much training as I could through Holistic Management International. I learned uh, through uh, volunteering for, um, with a farm nearby for several years that was implementing regenerative practices. I went and got internships and just did everything that I could to learn. And I am so excited when I'm learning something new, I just want to share it with others. And so as we were implementing new things on our farm, I would write curriculum and I would offer ways for the community to get involved by coming through field trips or camps or classes, and that started to grow. So every time I would continue in my learning journey, I would write new curriculum and offer it to people, and it just kept growing and growing. So what ended up starting with just simple one-hour tours on the farm turned out to six days a week, having activities and events for the community to get involved with while we were also producing um, you know, agricultural products on the farm. And I knew then that we were going to need to figure out how to replicate that somehow because we were having to hire people to stand on the curb to turn folks away. That was a, a need we were filling. Uh, people wanted, for whatever reason, to be connected either to community by coming to the land, maybe both. Maybe they wanted to understand a little bit better about where their food came from. Maybe they wanted their kids to have a life or at least an ounce of experience of a life that they actually missed out on. I know for a lot of folks um, in my age bracket, they actually have not, they've lived their whole life without really even having access to, to land to experience what that's like to just breathe fresh air outside of a city. And so for them, they want different for their kids. And that these are comments that a lot of them shared with us. And so we launched a nonprofit called Fearless Farmers. And this nonprofit teaches people how to teach regenerative agriculture to children. Not because we necessarily expect everybody who experiences the curriculum to become a farmer or a rancher, but we are hoping that people will go through our programs, use our curriculum, and see life through a regenerative lens and decisions that they make in the future. And so this curriculum is taught to educators, to farmers, to ranchers, to community members, and our hope is that we are creating hubs where within communities, there are people in all of those environments near each other who are getting the training, going through it, implementing the curriculum and weaving it in and out of farms and ranches and schools and community programs. So that regardless of where the child is, they are learning from this curriculum and it becomes a way for everybody to interact and, and learn from that intergenerational knowledge that's going to be embedded within each community. And then we're really fortunate that the way that we can bring this to life is that Fearless Farmers is sitting at a 120 acre ranch now called Deeply Rooted Ranch, which we also have into production and we put regenerative practices into place here. And so when the educators go through our program, they can come here uh, for a week long intensive and take part in applying what they have learned in our program at the same time that the ranch itself is running camps and classes and tours and things just like on our first farm. So it brings everything to life and brings everything together all in one place. 
Let's talk about what regenerative practices mean, what regenerative farming means. And I don't want to vilify what is not regenerative practice, and I don't want to create that dichotomy or the good versus bad. But we did mention in our previous conversation, just across the street, you have a non-regenerative regenerative farm. What are some of the practices, what are some of the things that make regenerative farming what it is? Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting question because regenerative agriculture is in a place in history right now where it's really being defined. And I like to use the metaphor of Wikipedia. So when when something's being defined and you have lots of opinions from lots of people who have um, you know, different backgrounds coming together over a course of time where they finally land on a definition. And that's what's widely accepted. That's really where we're at right now. And I would say that nuance is starting to even um, go away to where it's, a lot of the aspects of regenerative agriculture are starting to really formulate and be agreed upon among the masses. And so I'm going to give my viewpoint on where I see it. And I would imagine that someone sitting next to me might have a slightly different definition. So when we are putting regenerative practices into place here, everything points back to soil health. If we want to be healthy humans, then we need to eat healthy nutrient-dense food, and that is going to be grown in healthy soil. And in order for communities to be healthy, then communities of people need to eat healthy food and be taken care of. And so what we focus on is making sure that our actual agricultural practices always consider soil health as a priority. That means that we implement things like um, holistic planned grazing, where our livestock is on um, a grazing plan that allows them to move along to different areas of the earth based on what we worked out mathematically through our ecological monitoring, knowing how much forage is available and what that nutrient content of the forage is so that we know that the animals are being raised and are healthy before we are offering them to our community to eat as high quality proteins. And in addition to that, we are also growing food in our market garden, and we take great care in making sure that the soil is free of pesticides and herbicides because we don't want that in our food supply chain. And we also want to make sure that our food goes to as local of a consumer as possible so that we are meeting the needs of our immediate community. So everything points back to soil health for us. Now, I'm going to put aside this last notion that you put of distribution and talk about the soil health. What's the difference then between regenerative agriculture and organic farming or organic agriculture? Certainly, I am not the expert. Again, this will be my opinion. You know, organic certification has been developed to have a set of rules that need to be followed in order to receive, you know, that certificate. And within organic certification, there are a number of um, chemicals that you can still use. There are a number of practices that you can still use that I would say still aren't great for the soil and aren't regenerative. So to me, it's a it's a decision for us that we actually, at this time, we may change our mind, aren't immediately seeking out or organic certification because we feel like we would rather be consumer certified, we call it, where if our consumer knows and builds a relationship with us and comes out here and sees what we're doing, volunteers with us, really builds community here, they're going to know 
that how we are doing this is actually better than organic in many ways, because we are going to really follow the earth's lead on what we need to do next in any given area. And we aren't going to be adding additional inputs that nature wouldn't otherwise, you know, do in observing what nature does to be able to help things thrive. And I'm going to add a layer here uh, in, in a bit of a try to see what you think about it, but try to see if this also falls within your narrative. And and uh, I've got an idea already, but I'll, I'll put it out there anyway, that you, you mentioned the distribution channel. So it's about minimizing, of course, the carbon footprint as to where uh, the food is is purchased and, and consumed. Also, you bring in uh, the idea of community is one of the first things that you mentioned. So it's not just about the soil health, but I imagine, and, and we talked about this as well, is is the way that your employees uh, are part of this community and the way that that they participate within the production, distribution, and consumption process. That it is soil health, yes, but also the soil of our human and, and, and more than human relationships. You know, again, I'm not a doctor or... <laughs> um or a scientist, although I would like to say that I really am, <laughs> but we can get into that later if you'd like. I really feel strongly that there is a direct connection between soil health and gut health. And that means that if I want my employees that are here as part of our team to be able to be healthy and thrive, to continue to provide this nutrient dense food to our community, then they need to be cared for in a way that they thrive as well. And so what that means is what we're, what we're growing and raising here, then our team is going to have access to that food to be able to eat and enjoy. And we've expanded our business model from the beginning, really, so that we include, we have an executive farm chef on staff and we have a commercial kitchen being built here so that we are actually putting into practice, not just growing the food for the sake of feeding our community so that they can have those raw goods to take into their kitchens. But we're going to teach them if they would like how to prepare those foods in a nutrient dense way. And so that means our team has access to that as well as our community. And that's super important to us for the health of our community. Let's talk about these uh, week-long programs. What would one expect? What could we imagine that experience to be over the week? How do people enter? What are some of the patterns maybe you might see when people come in and the expectations they have, the hopes, the nervousness? What happens when they go through? And and especially, what happens after they, they leave, at least physically? They probably don't leave in terms of, of knowledge or, or spirit, but what happens after they leave and how does that continue? Mm -hmm. I should rewind a little bit and just explain that when Fearless Farmers was born, it was right in the beginning of the pandemic. And we were ready to launch in multiple different states. And we weren't able to do any of it because of the pandemic. So we had to pivot a little bit. And it actually ended up being a good thing because it allowed us to have time to evaluate what we think the best at this time model is for getting uh, people involved in learning how to teach regenerative agriculture to others. Our intention was to have it be um, for the sake of teaching children, but we discovered through some pilot testing of our curriculum and our training that it actually is really great for teaching adults as well. And so the way that people enter into this training program is to sign up for a cohort that meets online once a week if they go through our faster paced program which we call hummingbird or every other week which is our snail paced program that lasts for five months so it's either 10 weeks or five months and it meets once a week 
And then in, in between, people go through an LMS um, online to work their way through the curriculum to be ready to meet the next week. It is incredibly robust and allows for multiple ways for people to learn, meaning if they prefer to listen or prefer to read or prefer to watch, the same concept that's being taught is taught all three ways so that whatever method they prefer is there for them. And there's this beautiful workbook that they use to build their portfolio. So the entire time they're going through the course, they're building a portfolio meaning that they are on screen actually very minimally because we're asking people to go outside in their place and apply what they're learning and be able to come back and have meaningful discussions and decide what they need to get out of the next level of their learning by helping other people have access to that information that they have learned to inspire others as well as get feedback from the instructor after they complete either that 10 week or five month program, then they come here to the ranch for one week. And that's where that intensive takes place. And they are able to apply what they have learned in the course. And when they're here, that is when those camps or those field trips or those classes, that's where the kids are here. And they're able to really practice what they've learned in that cohort so that it becomes second nature to them. And the way that we've designed this is to be regenerative for the educators themselves. Being a former teacher myself in a classroom, when I needed to get professional development, continuing education credits, my options were very limited. I The only ones that really I can remember were taking Excel over and over again, which was to me not all that fulfilling. And I remember feeling very bored and I was checking a box of something that was required to do. It didn't feel life-giving. I didn't feel like I necessarily had anything to offer my students in a new way when I was done with that professional development. And for us, we want folks who go through this training to feel that they have been rejuvenated themselves so that when they are done, they have walked through it in a way that they will then be able to model what they have learned to their learners because they've experienced it themselves. They can talk about how they've experienced it. Likely they will have experienced some shift of some kind within themselves. Um, we are in our first phase right now of teaching our hummingbird and snail version of this. And so our first cohort will be coming in July to the ranch. And we can't wait to get the feedback from them of what that feels like after they have experienced that intensive so that we can also learn from them how they plan to apply it so that you know how it's made up. There are educators there are farmers and ranchers. There are community members that wanted to just take this training so they could implement it in their community. So there's multiple stakeholders that are all participating at the same time, and they will be implementing it in different ways in their communities. So that's something fun and unique too, to figure out what they plan to do with this information. And the beauty of our curriculum is that they can create the experiences that they would like. It's not like getting a book off of a library shelf that's full of activities. We really help people develop meaningful programs, whether it's in a classroom or it's on a farm or in any other environment. Now, what I'm really curious about is use of language in this case. And, and I'm kind of springboarding and and, uh, and we'll come back to to some of these experiences. But I want to talk about the fact that you're in Texas and you were in Arizona, red as red gets. And that's a wonderful choice. I mean, it was a choice at the end of the day, but, but you didn't go to upstate New York and you didn't go to uh, 
uh, you know, the, the, the foothills uh, of the Bay Area, you chose Texas. And I, I smiled to myself thinking of Donna Haraway of staying with the trouble, but you're deep in the trouble in, in many ways. And, and I say that again, um, at the risk of vilifying, um, you know, some of the, some of the practices there, but I, I'm interested in the idea of language because I use sometimes the word sustainability as, as a means of using an imperfect word or, or an imperfect concept, but one that people can connect with more than regeneration, which is often, uh, it, it's a bit of a stretch for some. How do you work with, communicate with, connect with some folks in the local community in order not to come in as the person who is enlightened and wants to teach everyone else, but someone who opens up spaces so that there can be increased um, possibilities for shared understanding. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to be able to learn from people regardless of their experiences. And by no means would we ever intend to come in as, hey, this is the way that we think everybody should do things. So when we are talking to folks, it's important that we share this fits our context. Our team sat down and developed what um, we really feel is important to us. And if what we do and how we make decisions does not constantly point back to our holistic goals, then we won't keep them or we may set them aside and come back to them later. But that also means that there's room for other people to come into the space with their own holistic context of what fits for them. And maybe a little bit of what we are doing inspires them to try something new we really focus on experimentation. So for instance, on a very practical level, if you're looking in the garden, this is new land to us. So we know how to grow vegetables and fruits and nuts, but this is the first time we're doing it here. And so we have to be practical about how we experiment with that. Do our rows go this way or do our rows go that way? And how is the water flow going to impact what we can grow. And we really want people who are in the community that maybe have lived in this area, in this place longer to say, Hey, we may also use pesticides and you guys don't, but we have found that when you grow in our area on this particular clay soil, these are the great experiences that we had when we experimented. And there's incredible value for us to be able to connect with our community in that way, even if our practices are different. So I would encourage people to leave the door open. I mean, that's just a life lesson. Leave the door open for the ability to learn from each other and then just each have the opportunity to share what fits their context. And so when you open the door to what is effectively your home, which is of course more than your house and then people come and, and stay and, uh, and, and, and learn and, and go through the curriculum, I imagine that you also have some points of resistance or some points where people are, are coming in perhaps questioning and, and that's a wonderful thing how does that play out in terms of the experiences that that you provide and of course understanding that the online part probably does does much to smooth that out but what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you've found so far well there's two different things we're talking about here so one is if the people that are coming here, have gone through our cohort, then yes, they already have all of this background information that they've received during the course. They've had peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, they've had their mentorship from their educator um, that has taught them through the training. And so a lot of those kinds of really wonderful heavy hitting discussions have probably already been happening and it's been happening in a very welcoming environment so that everybody 
feels comfortable and vulnerable enough to share and learn from each other. So when they get here, that stage has already been set so that it doesn't feel, I guess, for lack of a better word, scary to anybody. It feels comfortable to be able to share in that environment. But for folks, maybe like on Sunday, when the ranch itself had an event and had people coming from all over the place, we had friendly faces, people, friends, family that were here. We also had faces that we'd never met before. And there definitely is, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, folks come in and they're nervous. Like I said before, they've not, they're in a new place. It's kind of like going to a conference and you can't figure it out. Where are the bathrooms? Where am I going to go if I need a break? What do I need to do? And it's, it's that same kind of feeling for a little bit. And then you help people feel comfortable and then they feel like sharing their experiences. And we noticed that there were, I'll give an example. There was a conversation about ants because we have ants here. There's 120 acres. They're going to be here. <laughs> There's nothing that we can do about it to make them go completely away. But for people who have smaller plots of land, they really would prefer that their ants aren't in their garden. And so there was this whole discussion about how to get rid of ants in a garden. We don't worry about it too much because we know they're going to move on. But it was beautiful to watch. And we and we gave the space for others to share. Well, I have found that this works. And oh, someone else said, that's great. I might try that too. And although that, again, doesn't necessarily fit our context, we let the space be there for those conversations to happen. And they almost always turn to us and say, but how do you all do it? And so we, we let it be. And if we want them to have that information, we make it available to them if they would like to learn and if they would rather um, talk to each other about what they prefer to do as methods. And we give the space for that too. But I think, you know, you and I have talked previously about what does this look like? Do you draw that line in the sand and say, we stand on this side for these things, or do we leave space so that people can come and feel vulnerable enough to be themselves and be able to work through those things themselves? And that's definitely a fine line. But the way that we try to describe it is just come and learn how we do it. But please come and just share how what you know. Once the program is over, how do you ensure people stay connected? So we have a method. Um, it's not necessarily through social media, but it's through kind of a team chat type Um model where everyone in the class is able to communicate with each other throughout the class. And those will stay um, in place from, from that point forward. And then in addition, so the educator will always be available so that everybody can be a part of that. In addition to that, as we grow, and since there will be multiple cohorts as we go, then we will be introducing the cohorts to each other so that they can also learn from each other in an ongoing online format too. And offer um, from time to time special guests to be able to come present where anybody who's been in our cohort can come, um, whether it's to a Zoom setting or whether we actually host events here on the ranch and let people come to these one-off events. This is definitely a supportive ongoing um, program. This is, again, not like taking a book off of a shelf of the library and then being left to your own devices. We're here to support for the long haul. What are some of the uh imagination some of the hopes that you have uh, for fearless farmers uh, for the deeply rooted ranch what are some of the horizons towards which you want to head in the next few years yeah i it's fun when you have this idea of something that you think would work out really well and then it starts to do just that <laughs> so i for lack of better word here 
dreamed that this would happen. And it feels almost surreal sometimes that it's actually happening. And you don't know unless you see unless you see what the market wants, which by the way, is doesn't fit any business logic whatsoever, right? Normally you would see that you would create a business, you would create maybe a product for a business because there was just this super hungry, demanding you know audience that's ready to buy it and you know that your business would be successful. Our work is different. This is something that humanity needs that that the world needs us to be able to fill these gaps. And because it is complex and it has multiple stakeholders involved, then it becomes something where you're always trying to figure out how you capture the attention of the audience that you are needing to talk to at that time. So like I mentioned, we have educators coming, we have farmers coming, we have ranchers, we have community people. So when we are trying to figure out how to build quote these hubs, which that's just a term we use right now. We might come up with something else later, but something people can relate to. Then in the future, I envision that to be that, let's say our small town here that where we're located, that the schools are all using our curriculum, that the we have multiple regenerative farms actually around us, which can feel like isn't the case because it's Texas, but we do. <laughs> and that the farms are utilizing our curriculum and the community programs are, and these kids are just wherever they are they have touch points where this is happening. I envision there being a groundswell where the children that are involved in learning will, as they get older, demand more. And I say that in the best sense, because let's say they're getting into high schools that normally are only offering physics, ecology, or physics, biology, and um, what's the third one? Physics, biology, chemistry. Then there's no ecology. There hasn't been. And then there still isn't by the time that they're in high school. So what happens if they've actually had this woven into their elementary school and maybe middle school years, then maybe by the time they get to high school, we'll actually be able to weave it in there. And then when junior colleges and universities see that these learners are coming up the ranks and they want to be able to continue to learn, the, the universities are going to have to respond. I hope that from the university level, there will be work that's happening there that helps it come from the university down and that we're working on this from the bottom up and that we're all meeting in the middle. And I think that that would be the best case scenario because I envision, uh, let's say we have a local junior college here and it would be fantastic if the learners there we're a part of every aspect of what we're doing. What if the marketing departments within the junior college were getting their students involved in figuring out how to market the chicken and market the vegetables? And what if the um, ag sciences programs were actually a part of helping build the chicken coops and be here for part of the processing? And what if it became a very inclusive environment where everybody was working together and we were that support for them in their environment? And then imagine that being multiplied by communities all over the world. So I see that as something that is very possible and is already happening. And it, I don't think it actually will take too long, which is great. Because if we look at the stats, and I know that we all know this, so this is like preaching to the choir, but we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so let's do what we can to make big, big differences without having to bite off more than we can chew. This is totally reasonable for us to be able to weave all of this in within a child's experiences. 
And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about intergenerational learning. And of course, I mean, there's not a huge generation gap between junior college student and elementary, but you know, we can play around with the professors as well. And also in terms of the lifelong learning that is not set, it is one that is so much more flexible and adaptable uh, when we're talking about marketing chickens and being able to work with place. That That is also opening up spaces for lifelong learning. And I just keep wondering, you know, these schools require you to have a certain level of uh, reading and writing, a certain level of, uh, of numeracy. And, and wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, universities required incoming students or, or people to apply to have a certain level of eco-literacy? And that is a requirement and done. And, and if you don't, then you can't get in. Um, that would push the K-12s to, to do something a little bit more than learning about biology from the dead pages of a textbook. It would, but this, th- there's, I like to use the word and instead of but as much as possible. But <laughs> in this case, uh, we have a problem. And that's that for educators, and I've been in this place myself, and it's gotten so much harder since I was in a public school, so much is added to an educator's plate without anything being taken off. And so until we weave everything together so that educators feel like what they're teaching is meaningful to them and their students, and we take out the stuff that really isn't necessary, and we help it be relatable to place, then it is going to be a hard sell to make that change fast, unless there is that support within the entire school or within the entire district. When you are a teacher that sees a really good idea and you start to implement it in your classroom and you don't have the support of your peers or your administration, it's really hard to keep going. So I'll give you an example. When I was a first year teacher, (laughs) I, in my classroom, I remember feeling like it was such a sterile environment and I I didn't, it didn't feel comfortable for me to be in it. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, everybody is covering the walls with so much color and so much stimulation and just, just too much. Like it's too much for me. It's gotta be too much for my learners. And so I created my classroom to look more like a home and not to say that there weren't aspects or, you know, a poster here or there on the wall, but for a public school classroom, it definitely looked interesting to have lamps and tablecloths and <laughs> all kinds of things so that it felt comfortable, blues and greens, calming. And I noticed a difference. And then I also noticed that the learners often within other classrooms weren't necessarily taken outside a whole lot. And so I tried to find opportunities to be able to take learning outside. And then my Last straw, if you will, was I thought I have to figure out after that first year, I thought I have to figure out how to make better sense of this. Everything that we are needing to teach them, they are giving to us in this huge binder, asking us to teach it in a very siloed way. And there has to be a way for all of that to actually connect better. And so I ripped apart the entire curriculum, wasn't available online at the time because it was a long time ago, (laughs) but I laid it all out all across the carpet of my classroom and spent the whole summer piecing it back together in a way that made sense to me. And I came up with four thematic units by then that this was me going into only my second year of teaching. And I came up with four thematic units that I would be able to implement so that I could tie everything together in a more meaningful way and to weave ecology through it. And I didn't At the time, I didn't even realize what I was doing. I just knew I needed that for me. And so then I felt like maybe my learners that I was facilitating their learning would need it too. 
No, I appreciate what you're saying tremendously. And as a historian, it I, I laugh at the discipline of history, which is siloed, uh, at least in K-12. And history, you're always adding because every year there's something else to add. And eventually the textbooks will be 5,000 pages long. And we have such a fear of taking stuff out. When we use things like uh, learning loss, it, it shows that socioculturally we're afraid to lose things. And then I, as you're speaking, I, I, I keep thinking about this idea of design for subtraction, of saying, let's just make it a coherent whole and make it less complicated. It doesn't have to be less complex, but it could be less complicated. Uh, and 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 something where where it all comes together, and rather than having a thousand different pieces, just bring them all together when it makes sense to design for subtraction. So no, no. So I hear you. I absolutely hear you. That choices have to be made, and it's not just about adding and adding because then the whole tower crumbles. Uh, I'm with you. Right, and then think about what that looks like. I it. it I wasn't set up for success. I didn't set myself up for success within my work environment that way though, because if I were to have taught um, completely the way that I had designed it for myself and not bent back to the original plan, then the uh, administration doesn't know how to follow up or check to make sure that I'm doing things right because I'm now doing it completely differently than everybody else. And so it doesn't fit the mold. Um, and that, that's when I realized I needed to start seeking out other opportunities to be able to connect just for myself and have ultimately landed here, which feels like a really good fit for me. And this is one of the things I appreciate so much about your work is that educators uh, are, are sometimes a bit lost, they don't have the support, and, and they also don't have the know-how. I, I, they don't have a, that, that, that expertise. So you are in many ways a bridge, in many, many ways, a bridge between the world of practitioners outside of education and educators, because you can speak teacher as well as having experience outside of the school building. And, and that really, I can imagine, uh, is, is, is comforting, but also very powerful as well. I, I'm just going to end with one last question, which is actually the et cetera section. Um, do you have anything else that's on your mind? Or is there anything that, uh, that, that, that you would like to, to bring up that, that you might not have had um, the opportunity to bring up? Sure. You know, when you go through holistic management training and for folks who know Alan Savory and Savory Institute and who know holistic management international, the curriculum is similar, um, on both sides of the equation there. I've, I've gone through training through both organizations and the support is, um, incredible when you have other folks who are going through it as well. And what happens is you really learn the importance of, working your way through how holistic management teaches you to consider your decision-making, the stakeholders that need to be involved, the quality of life goals that you want to be able to have. And a lot of folks realize after getting into it, that it applies to so much more than land management, that it really just applies to life. And so what's been fun is when we are teaching our educators or when the learners are coming through here or when I am sitting with my family in my house, then oftentimes we are just working through a lot of those things together. So we have within our family, our holistic goals and our quality of life, um, basically, you know, statements, if you will, they're informal, but things that are important to us, we will make decisions within our family that definitely 
would maybe go a different direction if we weren't being very vigilant about always having that check and balance system in place to point back to our holistic goal for ourselves, we would be overworked, we would be burned out. And we wouldn't be fulfilled if we weren't keeping that in mind. And so what's fun for me is although this is a very place-based, um, land-based uh, concept that we're teaching through, like I said in the beginning, you don't have to be a farmer. You can apply what you're learning through anything that we're teaching into any environment, even your own household. And for that reason, it's really fun for me. My kids are adults now, and it's been fun to see how they start to implement this in their adult lives. And so I get the front seat to what this looks like when my own kids are implementing what we are teaching. How do people get a hold of you? How do they learn more about Fearless Farmers? So Fearless Farmers website is fearlessfarmers.org. And on that site, you'll be able to see which um, dates there are for our upcoming either snail or hummingbird cohorts. We also have smaller workshops available for people who just want to try things out for a little bit and see if they like it. And we offer bespoke options as well. So for folks who have eight people or so in a group that would like to go through our course, it's the same material. We just work on the dates that work for you know that particular group. And we have um, space to be able to start those soon. So if people want to reach out to us, that's where you can find us. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, leave five stars, leave a review. Again, our website is www.coconut-thinking.com. And of course, you can also find us as well as some fantastic authors and thinkers on the Intrepid Ed News website, www.intrepidednews.com. In the meantime, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.